ultimately our hope is in Jesus. We've been talking about hope the last few weeks, and ultimately our hope is Jesus. Our hope is that he is good and that he's a God who would rather die for us than condemn us. He would rather save us than destroy us. Our hope is that he is king and that he is returning to set everything wrong right, to implement a rule so good that it'll work backwards to make every sadness untrue. Our hope is that he is alive despite dying, that in death he took death captive, and now our stories do not end in tombs. Our stories will never end. They'll be a part of his story, a good story that will go on forever and ever. And that's our hope, that Jesus is good, that Jesus is going to make wrongs right, that Jesus is not going to let death have the final word in our lives or in the lives of those that we love. This is our hope. But what happens when tragedy befalls you and knocks the hope out of you? Or when... Uh, what happens when the relentless weariness of life knocks you out at the knees and you just feel like you can't get up again? What happens when Jesus feels distant and despair surrounds us and it feels like despair is a lot closer than God is? What do we do then? Um, growing up in church, I often heard this same sentiment over and over again to struggling, hurting, desperate people. You need to lean into Jesus. And man, that sounds so that's a good thing. I'm like, how do we do that, though? What does that look like? Like, Jesus, are you over there? I'm going to lean into you. You know, like, wh- how do I do it? Uh, Jesus is our hope. And that statement sounds nice and spiritual, but in the most painful moments of my life, I found that statement to be incomplete and unhelpful because how do we do it? Like, what does it look like? How do we lean into Jesus? If Jesus is our hope, how do I lean into someone I cannot see, I cannot touch? Um, one of Darby's favorite movies is While You Were Sleeping with Sandra Bullock. And um, there's a reoccurring joke in that movie that when someone wants to kiss her, they lean in. And uh, Joey, the one character in there, he's like, this guy bothering you, he's leaning. I see him leaning, you know? It, the, um, there's something about when you want to be with someone, when you want to listen to someone, when you want to intently focus on someone, you lean in. A writer and researcher of body language, Vanessa Van Edwards, said, leaning towards someone is a nonverbal way of telling them you are engaged with what they are saying and who they are. This works especially well if you're in a group of people and you're interested in one person in the group. A way to show them you are interested is by leaning towards So having nonverbal ways of engaging with Jesus, showing that we're interested and engaged with him, isn't bad advice. Like saying lean into Jesus when you're hopeless, that's a good thing to say. But I think that American churches and church people have become experts at saying things that sound spiritual, but that have no practical application. We give good advice, but it's advice that we ourselves don't follow and we don't know how to follow. Sometimes we know the right thing to say, but we don't actually know how to implement it. Um, Growing up, I always hated math. I hate math. I'm terrible at it. Most subjects come pretty easy for me, but not math. But if the math questions or problems were multiple choice, I could usually, like, use some logic and figure out what the right answer was through logic. But I really hated when the teacher forced us to show our work 
to prove we knew how to get the right answer and we weren't just getting lucky because oftentimes I didn't know how to get the right answer. I could get there, I could find the right answer, but I couldn't show my work. And I think sometimes in American Christianity, we've memorized good answers, things like lean into Jesus, but we can't actually show our work. We don't actually know how to do it. Jesus is our hope and leaning into him in desperate times is a good posture. But I think if we're honest, we have no idea how to practically lean into that hope. In James 4.8, it says, draw close to God, and he will draw close to you. If Jesus is our hope, we need him to draw close to us. We need him to envelop us in his hope. But God is a gentleman and waits for us to make the first move. We draw close to him, and then he draws close to So what does it look like to draw near to God? What does it look like to lean into Jesus? How do we do that? Essentially what James is saying is there are things that we can do in life that will have us reaching for Jesus And there are things that we do in life that push Jesus away Things that we do that make us lean towards him and things that we do that make us lean away from him And it seems the more we lean in the more we want to lean in and the more we lean away the more we want to lean away I don't know about you, but it seems like the more I passionately pursue God, the more I want to pursue him. I get a hunger for him. My appetite for him grows. The less I engage with him and pursue him, the less appetite I have and the more my appetite for other things grows. The ancient Israelites saw God dwell in the tabernacle and ultimately the temple. And to draw close to him was to approach the holy space where he dwelt. When they said, get close to God, they would go to these holy spaces. Now the Spirit of God, though, lives in us. Those of us who have submitted to King Jesus, who have committed to become apprentices of how he lived and loved. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, it says, Don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you? So if God lives in us, why does it feel so far away? Why does it feel like God is so far from us if he lives in us? The same reason that two spouses can live in the same house And feel alone being in the same space is not the same as enjoying each other's company you can share the same space and still lean away from each other Um, he was a brilliant playwright Anton Chekhov but he was also very cynical and he said if you are lonely do not marry because he says to be lonely by yourself is less painful than to be lonely in the room with someone else I don't think all marriage has to end up that way but I will say there, it is easy to become, to dwell in the same space with someone and to not have your lives intertwined, but just running parallel courses. And I think that same thing can happen with God. You can share the same space and yet be leaning away from each other. John Owen, a Puritan, said, Friendship is most maintained and kept up by visits. And these visits, the more free and, occasion, and less occasioned by urgent business, the deeper the friendship. And so what Owens is saying is, as he's talking about friendship with God, is a close communion with God is about often visiting with him, not being in a rush when we do so, and not having an agenda for our time together. We lean into Jesus, our hope, when we slow down our bodies and we turn our minds to meditate on him. The word meditation in our culture, more often than not, conjures up images of Buddhist monks, you know, with their legs crossed, and their hands out to the side, or yoga enthusiasts emptying their mind. But the Bible is also an Eastern book. Uh, It it mentions meditation at least 23 times. 
The difference, however, is the goal of Christian meditation is not to empty your mind, but to empty your mind of everything that is not Christ. We empty ourselves so that we can be filled with him, filled with hope. The key then, according to Dallas Willard, of drawing near to God is to see Jesus and to hold him before your mind with as much fullness and clarity as possible. It is to adore him. If we want to be hopeful people, we need to be people who hold Jesus before our mind with as much fullness and clarity as possible. In 1642, Nicholas Herman entered a Paris monastery to become a monk. After having served in the Thirty Year War and surviving the massacre at Rambervilles, uh, it was a village of 2,600 people in the Thirty Years War, but there was this massacre there and less than 400 people in the village survived. And so after this terrible, tragic time in the war, he was in the middle of a battlefield and he saw a leafless tree because it was wintertime. And he realized that soon the tree would leaf and flower in a few months when spring came, it would be utterly transformed. And God used this picture of a tree as a symbol uh, of how he could transform the human heart. And he thought, okay, I've been in this war, I've done these horrible things. If God can transform this tree in spring, he can transform my heart. And so after the war, he entered this monastery in Paris. Upon entering the monastery, he was like, they're going to give me some kind of like cool monastery job that is going to awaken this deep spiritual fire inside of me. And I'm going to be this like truly spiritually mature, great person. And so he came into the monastery and they're like, you're going to wash dishes for the monastery. He's like, that's not what I expected. You know, he's like, I thought I would be praying or I would be doing these religious customs. And instead, they're like, you're going to wash dishes. And for the rest of his life he spent in the monastery, he washed dishes, except for the very last few years where he had gout in his feet and he couldn't stand and he repaired shoes instead. But for the rest of his life, he washed dishes in a monastery. And in this role and in his book practicing the presence of god he affirms that in washing dishes he found a way to lean into god i want to just read a few excerpts of his book to you we establish in ourselves a sense of god's presence by continually conversing with him it would be a shameful thing to quit this constant conversation to take our minds to think of trifles and fooleries we must know him before we can love him. In order to know God, we must often think of him. And when we come to love him, we shall then also think of him often, for our heart and our minds will always be with our treasure. There is neither an art nor a science for going to God, but only a heart res resolutely determined to apply itself to nothing but him and for his sake and to love him only. And finally, the last quote I want to share from his book, the difficulties of life do not have to be unbearable. It is the way we look at them, either through faith or unbelief, that makes them seem so. We must be convinced that our Father is full of love for us and that he only permits trials to come our way for our own good. Let us occupy ourselves entirely in knowing God. The more we know him, the more we will desire to know him. As love increases with knowledge, the more we know God, the more we will truly love God. We will learn to love him equally in times of distress or in times of great joy. We lean into Jesus, our hope, by slowing down and constantly bringing him to our minds, by entering into a continual conversation with him, by fixing our mind on his goodness and on his glory. A.W. Tozer said, a low view of God is the cause of a hundred lesser evils. 
but a high view of God is the solution to 10,000 temporal problems. And many times I am hopeless because I have a low view of God. I want to end today by reading Isaiah's vision of the throne of God from Isaiah 6. If you feel comfortable, close your eyes. You don't have to. Just try to envision this in your minds as I read. Isaiah 6, 1 through 4. I saw the Lord high and exalted. He was seated on the throne. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying around the throne, and they were calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorpost and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. And the one on the throne said, With men there are things that are impossible, but with me all things are possible. I give eternal life, and you will never perish, and no one can steal you away from me. I say these things so that you might have peace. In the world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You are my beloved, walk in my love. The first part of that was Isaiah, but the second half, the, the voice, that's from Jesus in the Gospels. He's the God that is on the throne. He's the God that we must hold before our minds. He's the God who is great and glorious, but who is also good because he loves us and is for us. At the heart of Christianity is not a list of rules or even beliefs. Those are important. It is an event consummated by an encounter with a divine presence. In all our doing things, we cannot miss being with God. The goal of Christianity is to be with him, to become like him, and to do what he did. And when we are with him, we will know hope. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, at any time we can come before your throne. And many times I have made that so cheap that I don't even think about it or care. I forget that you are the high king of heaven, and my hopelessness is directly tied to having a low view of you for losing sight of your glory and losing sight of your goodness. And God, my mind often rushes to many things, all the things I should be anxious about, all the things that I should be doing, all the things that I want and desire and want to do and want to accomplish, but my mind does not often race to you. God, may I train my mind, may I discipline my mind to think about you, to look at you, to long after you, to fill my mind with all your fullness and goodness, to enter into a continuous conversation with you. God, I want to be a person of hope. I want to be an agent of love and a person of peace. And I know that comes from being with you. In life, there have been people that I've met and just being with them, I know that they have been with God because they have become like him. And I want to be one of those people. I want us to become those kind of